This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 150, entitled The Lion and the Lamb. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. I appreciate you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Wow, 150 episodes, 150 weeks in a row. That is a major accomplishment, and I appreciate my supporters and those that have encouraged me to continue working on this podcast. Here is looking forward to 150 more episodes. I wanted to offer some reflections on one of my favorite chapters of the book of Revelation, which is Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, if you didn't already know, was the chapter that gave me a lot of the insights that I needed to settle on a dissertation topic for my doctoral studies. I noticed in Revelation 5 that Jesus is the person who defines what conquering means within the book of Revelation. Sometimes it's translated as conquering, sometimes it's translated as overcoming. It doesn't really matter. The point is that Jesus is the person that defines this particular ethical trait that is expected of the readers of the seven churches, and by application, those modern readers of the book of Revelation as well. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will look at the portrayal of Jesus as the lion and the lamb. What do these images mean? And why is it that Jesus is described as two very different animals? Would these animals suggest to Revelation's original readers that Jesus is actually a heavenly angel or perhaps almighty God? Or do these images reinforce the Christology of a human messiah? one who is descended from a long line of famous human beings. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our text for today will be Revelation chapter 5. And so for my first point, we'll be looking at Jesus as the lion. In order to see Jesus as the lion, we will read the first five verses of Revelation chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. 
That's Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And so in this section where we learn that Jesus is described as the lion from the tribe of Judah, we can discern a variety of points about the person of Jesus and his relationship to God. And so I want to reflect on these points, and hopefully you can benefit from my sincere reflections. First thing that I notice when I look at this passage is that Jesus is clearly distinct from the one who is seated upon the throne. The passage begins with one who is seated upon the throne, and he's got in his hand this scroll. I know it gets translated in many translations as a book, but it would have been a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. And all of heaven is looking for somebody who is worthy to open this scroll that is being held by God. And of course, the imagery of God holding the scroll and God revealing the scroll would be to indicate that God has his secrets, his purposes, his plans that he wishes to reveal to the reader. And we learn that Jesus is the only person that is worthy to open up this scroll. Of course, in the Greco-Roman world, everyone was acknowledging the Roman emperor as the one who was worthy. And so the repeated emphasis that no one in heaven or on earth was found worthy except for Jesus was meant to subvert those claims of the power of the various Roman emperors, both on earth and supposedly in heaven. And so we have the one who's seated upon the throne. That is one person, of course. And we have somebody else, someone who is distinct from the God who is seated upon the throne. And that distinct person is described as the lion. Namely, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And this recalls a very famous passage from Genesis chapter 49. Now in Genesis 49, we have Jacob, the famous patriarch, who is giving his final will and testimony to his sons. And one of his sons that is going to be described is Judah. So you have the line from Genesis of Abraham going to Isaac and then going to Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel, and Israel has 12 sons, one of whom is Judah, who's going to be described in this passage where Jacob is talking to Judah. Genesis 49, starting in verse 8. Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, and that is the passage where there is this promised ruler that is the descendant of Judah, 
this promised royal figure, this sort of image is being drawn upon to describe Jesus as the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now we know that famous rulers did descend from Judah, and the most famous ruler to descend, according to the Hebrew Bible, is King David. King David and the line of kings that descended after David directly came down from Judah. And it's important when we look at these lineal descendants and these genealogies because it demonstrates that the depiction of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah indicates that he is someone who actually descended from Judah. Judah, of course, is a human being, and so his descendants, those that came forth from Judah, are also going to be human beings, because that's what happens. Human beings bear other human beings. So after a long line of succession, we have David, the human ruler of Israel, came from Judah. And of course, we know that out of David came the Messiah, came Jesus. And so Jesus is also going to be a human being that descends from Judah. This, of course, is not something that you would say if you believed that Jesus is actually Israel's God. You don't describe Israel's God as someone who is a descendant from a human being. This is also not the kind of description that you would give if you believed that Jesus was a heavenly angel, a member of the heavenly court, or even an archangel like Michael. Angels, the heavenly angels, the messengers from heaven, are not descendants from human beings. To say that someone is a descendant from Judah is to say that he is a human being who came after Judah. He didn't exist before Judah, not in any real and meaningful way. The portrayal of Jesus as the lion from the tribe of Judah indicates that he is a human being who came forth from Judah and, of course, did not exist prior to that time. Now, we have to talk about the animal imagery that is being used here. Revelation could have just very easily said that Jesus descended from Judah, but it wants to make this point that Jesus is this lion-type figure. Well, we learn from this Genesis 49 passage that a lion, of course, is a ferocious, powerful warrior. It is this lion, according to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, that has conquered in order that Jesus would be worthy enough to open the seals of this scroll and to read the contents of the scroll. So it's in the Greek, it very much says that Jesus has conquered in order that he might open the scroll. So it's something having to do with Jesus' ability to conquer as this lion-type figure. Of course, lions are powerful images. They are very powerful animals. They are warrior animals. And so this gives the impression that Jesus is a ferocious, powerful warrior. And of course, this is how he is portrayed as conquering. Now, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
which could not have been written prior to the year 68 AD because that was when the community at Qumran was defeated by the Romans and their settlement was burned to the ground based on surviving coins that had been found in the burnt wreckage. We know that the reading of Genesis 49 as a messianic portrayal was held by at least the Jews at Qumran. And so the image showing up in Revelation indicates that this is the sort of thing that was being discussed already by Jewish readers of Genesis 49. Let me read you a passage from the Dead Sea Scrolls. This came out of the fourth cave, and it's documented as 4Q252. A scepter shall not be removed from the tribe of Judah. While Israel has the dominion, there will not lack someone who sits on the throne of David. For the ruler's staff is the covenant of royalty. The clans of Israel are the standards. Until the Messiah of justice comes, the branch of David. For to him and his seed has been given the covenant of royalty over the people for all everlasting generations. So that's what we see in the Qumran scrolls, where the depiction of this warrior, who is also a ruler from the tribe of Judah, is explicitly defined as the one who is going to sit on the throne of David. He is called the Messiah, the anointed king, and he is called the branch of David, namely the person who shoots off of David's family tree. So there's really no reason not to read Genesis 49 messianically. That is how the writer of the book of Revelation is reading it, and that is how Jews in the first century, or maybe even earlier, depending on when this document at Qumran was written, that is how these readers are reading this particular passage. Now, in Revelation 5.5, we see quite explicitly that the Lion of the tribe of Judah is also described as the Root of David. Now, we need to talk about this word Root, okay? A lot of our translations will say that Jesus is the Root of David here, and many people see Root as something that is a plant imagery piece. It is something that is within the ground, and it's something that out of which grows something else. So what does it mean that Jesus is the root of David? Well, the issue here is that the Greek word that is translated root, the noun reza, does in fact mean root when it comes to context of agriculture, but the Greek noun reza refers to a descendant or a shoot when it refers to persons based on every single one of the New Testament occurrences. So let me say that again. The Greek noun reza refers to an actual root when we're talking about the context of agriculture, but when it refers to persons, it refers to a shoot or a descendant, not to a root. So some translations will say that Jesus is the shoot of David or the descendant of David. And the BDAG lexicon makes this distinction of referring to Reza as a root 
an agricultural context, but it refers to a descendant or a shoot when it refers to actual persons. So it's not just me picking the translation that I like that suits my theology. This is what we see in our best Greek lexicons of the New Testament. So to say that Jesus is the shoot or the descendant of David indicates that he is of this long line of royal kings. David, of course, was promised that he and his descendants would occupy the throne of David forever. They would have kingship forever and that there would be this long line of descendants that would be royal. So this depicts Jesus when Jesus described as the descendant of David, as a human being like David, who descended from David. And of course, someone's descendant does not exist at the time of their forefathers. To describe Jesus as the descendant of David indicates that Jesus is someone who is younger than David. Jesus did not exist at the same time as David, or even pre-exist David. This, of course, reinforces the fact that Jesus, according to the book of Revelation, is a human being who descended from David and from Judah. And this automatically disqualifies Jesus as being Israel's God or any sort of heavenly angel, even Michael the archangel. Okay, so we've discussed Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah and as a descendant of David, but it describes Jesus here as someone who has conquered. And so the real question here in Revelation is, are we seeing Jesus as the conqueror who is the ferocious warrior type, like this lion figure that we see Jesus portrayed as? Is that the way that Revelation is going to end and conclude this particular chapter. Well, we learn very quickly in the next couple of verses that Jesus is going to be further defined as another type of animal, an animal that is not quite very powerful and not very ferocious. And so we have to look at the narrative of Revelation to see how it is that Jesus is described as one who conquers. How is conquering, from a messianic perspective, portrayed in Revelation? Of course, in the first century world, based on all available evidence, based on history, based on the annals of war, based on coins, based on iconography, gladiatorial games, Roman art, you name it, everyone who is a conqueror is someone who defeats their enemies. Conquerors in that culture were ones that defeated their enemies in war, they defeated their enemies with bloodshed, and they certainly would defeat their enemies with powerful weapons. To portray Jesus as a conqueror who actually dies, and who actually is defeated by his enemies, would be to introduce a definition of conquering that did not exist in the first century. It is to portray Jesus paradoxically as a conqueror, to subvert the understanding of conquering, and in doing so, to redefine conquering in a very special way for the readers of the book of Revelation to emulate and to apply to their own life. 
So let's look at how Revelation redefines conquering. And Revelation does this by portraying Jesus as another animal, as the lamb. This brings us to our second point. Point number two, the lamb that interprets the lion. So we're going to read the next verse in Revelation chapter 5. We're going to read verse 6, which says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. That's Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. And now there is a very important literary feature appearing in our particular chapter. It's a literary feature that casual readers of Revelation tend to miss and ignore. And this literary feature is described as the hearing and seeing motif. You'll read about this in the critical commentaries of Revelation. There is a narrative literary piece called the hearing and seeing motif. And this is how the hearing and seeing motif works and functions within the book of Revelation. John the Revelator will hear something, it'll be described, but when he sees what was just heard, what he sees is something that further defines what was previously heard. Oftentimes, he will hear something, and he will turn and see something that is quite different. And those two different images are meant to be complementary. In fact, what he sees is specifically meant to further unpack and define what he just heard. So I'll give you a couple of examples of where this shows up in the book of Revelation. You can kind of see how this literary feature functions. And then once we understand how the literary feature functions, we can apply it to Revelation chapter 5, where the lamb further defines the conquering powerful lion. So let's look at the literary feature of the hearing and seeing motif. In chapter 1, starting in verse 10, we have John saying that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard, notice the hearing, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. He lists them there, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So that is what he hears. He hears the loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And then the passage goes on and it says that I turn to see the voice that was speaking with me. And what does John actually see? He says, quote, I saw one like a son of man. So that's in Revelation 1, verses 10 through 13, to where he hears the loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, but he turns and he sees the son of man. Now, the Son of Man is the one that further interprets and defines this loud voice like the sound of a trumpet that has ordered John to write what he sees and to send it to the seven churches. The Son of Man further defines this important and authoritative voice. The authoritative voice is defined as one who is human and who is authorized by God. 
So that's in Revelation chapter 1. We can also see this in Revelation 21. In fact, the literary motif appears in a variety of places in Revelation, but these are some of the more notable ones, in my opinion. In Revelation 21, in the introduction of New Jerusalem, we can start in verse 9, where it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So it's in Revelation 21, 9. John there hears that he is going to see the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's what he hears. In the very next verse, it says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. That's Revelation 21, verse 10. So we can see there that John hears that he is going to see the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And the reader is sitting there thinking, okay, I know what the bride, the wife of the Lamb is. The bride of Jesus is the church. But what he actually sees is something that we might not have thought we were going to see. We see a city, a holy city. We see a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. And that is the seeing that John saw that further defines what he hears. The holy city, New Jerusalem, further defines the bride. The bride is, in fact, a city, a heavenly city that comes down out of heaven. In fact, the people of God are basically being defined and explained as this holy city, a new Jerusalem. So that's how it functions. We see John hears something, and then what he immediately sees further defines what he just heard. And so when we go back to our main passage of Revelation chapter 5, we can see in this passage, and I'll show you how it works. We can see there in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 5, where the elder says, Stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the descendant of David has conquered, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. But then in the very next verse, verse 6, it says, And I saw a lamb standing as if slain. So we have the image of a lamb as the thing that John saw that further defines a conquering, powerful lion. How does Jesus conquer? Jesus conquers, according to Revelation, as a lamb, as a weak lamb, one who has been slain. And actually in the Greek, it's more specific. It is a lamb that has been slaughtered, but this lamb is also standing. So we have to deal with all of those images. Stated as strongly as I can, Jesus is described as conquering not with a powerful image, but with a weak, sacrificial Passover image of an animal that has died and who basically has been conquered by his enemies. And so that's what it means to conquer in Revelation from a Christian perspective. You conquer in the way that Jesus did. So let's talk about the image of a lamb. We spent a lot of time talking about the lion. What is it about a lamb? Of course, 
the Jewish readers would have drawn on the images of Passover and the Paschal Lamb. If you're familiar with the early chapters of Exodus, the lamb was sacrificed and its blood was painted upon the outer walls of the homes in order to celebrate the forgiveness of God's people and, of course, to talk about the Exodus event, the rescue and the redemption of God's people from slavery. The lamb, of course, is not like a ferocious lion. The lamb is not a powerful figure. It is not even an animal that is known for battle. Stated as strong as I can, the lamb is not a warrior. It's almost as if Revelation has drawn on two extremes in order to depict Jesus. How is Jesus triumphantly defined as a conqueror? Jesus is a conqueror as the most docile and the weakest animal that the writer can think of as a lamb. So we should note that the lamb is the primary metaphor to which Jesus is referred to in the book of Revelation. This is really an important point. People like to talk about Jesus as the lion and the lamb, and that's true. But in Revelation, he is only rarely described as the lion. I think it's only two times. And Jesus is only rarely described with his own human name as Jesus. The most common way that Jesus is portrayed in the book of Revelation is with this lamb imagery. Something like 28, 29 times, depending on how you count it. It is Jesus as this sacrificial Passover animal whose death and resurrection is going to define his significance. So let's talk about those particular points. It's interesting here that the image of Jesus as a lamb is someone who is both standing and who is slaughtered. And readers are sitting there thinking, how in the world does that make sense? Is he dead or is he alive? Is he standing up like people who are alive typically do? Or is he slaughtered? Is he dead and slaughtered on the ground? And Revelation is drawing on both of these images. And it wants readers to hold both of these images in tension because it's both the death, the sacrificial death, and the triumphant resurrection of Jesus that define Jesus in his Christological person. Revelation doesn't just want you to understand Jesus as a sacrificial martyr figure. It also doesn't just want you to understand Jesus as someone who has been raised from the dead and who is standing triumphantly. It wants you to realize Jesus and to define him with both of these important images. Christians tend to talk about one or the other from the perspective of Revelation's Christology, Christians should be thinking of both of these particular points. Standing, of course, indicates resurrection and the victory that is associated with Jesus having been raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead, he was exalted to heaven, and he was the beneficiary of God's authority. So this would indicate Jesus as one who is authorized by God. God, of course, being the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Describing Jesus as the one who is slaughtered indicates, of course, that Jesus, in fact, died. And, of course, it draws upon the sacrificial images that are associated with the Jewish Passover. 
Now, the obvious point of a slaughtered lamb in regard to the Christology is that Jesus was mortal, meaning Jesus was susceptible to death. Jesus completely died. He didn't partially die. It wasn't as if he had two natures and one nature died and the other nature was immortal. No, Revelation describes Jesus as someone who was slain. Specifically, Jesus was slaughtered. It's a very powerful image. But we all know that God, someone who is distinct from Jesus, is immortal, meaning that God cannot die. God is incapable of dying. It is impossible for God to die. Jesus, on the other hand, did die. He was slain. He was slaughtered. And Revelation wants to highlight the death of Jesus as something that defines him. To describe Jesus as the slaughtered lamb indicates that he is someone who was mortal, and describing Jesus as one who is standing indicates he is one who has come out the other end of death by resurrection, and God is the one that raised Jesus from the dead. And out the other end of the resurrection, Jesus being exalted to heaven and being authorized by God, we can see that Jesus is described here as having seven horns and seven eyes. Readers of Revelation know that Revelation likes to use a lot of numbers, and numbers have a variety of significant points and images. The number seven is a number of completeness, and the image of a horn is a very common image that describes strength. To break the horn of one's enemies means to break their strength. To possess the horn, or to lift up the horn, or to exalt the horn, means to exalt the strength uh, that you possess. Jesus here is a lamb that has seven horns. Obviously, this is not a literal image. There are no lambs that have seven horns, but it's combining all of these images to describe Jesus as possessing the number of completeness in regard to his strength. Jesus is a powerful lamb in light of his death and resurrection. Jesus also is a lamb that possesses seven eyes. Again, this is not the type of image that you would read literally. There are no lambs that have seven eyes and seven horns. Now, messianically within the Jewish scriptures, the descendant of David, the branch, which is a very common messianic image, was described as one having seven eyes. Check out Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, which says, Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol, for behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I've set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. That's Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, where the branch, this messianic figure for the descendant of the family tree of David is one that possesses seven eyes. Eyes, of course, would indicate the imagery of insight and wisdom. 
So for Jesus to possess seven eyes suggests that he bears a completeness in his wise insight of the world. So there's so many important things that we can see as Jesus is described as one who has conquered, but Jesus conquered as a Passover weak lamb who was killed, who was slaughtered, but he was one whom God vindicated with resurrection and exaltation. So in conclusion, we have observed that the book of Revelation combines a great many allusions and metaphors as it portrays Jesus as the lion and the lamb. In doing so, we can discern some significant features about the person of Jesus and his relationship with God. First, we noted that Jesus was distinguished from the one who is seated upon the throne and the two are never collapsed into one being. Two, Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah, which is a powerful messianic figure of a ruler who descends from the human being Judah. Three, Jesus is the descendant of David, namely the human being who descends from David, whom God promised with the Davidic covenant that he and his descendants would possess the throne and the kingdom forever. Four, the lion has conquered, and this conquering becomes the model that is to be followed by Revelation's readers. Despite the popular understanding of conquering, which is one to where the conqueror defeats his enemies, Jesus actually was conquered by his enemies, and Jesus actually died. Thus, conquering is redefined paradoxically in Revelation to emulate the life of Jesus that end with his own martyrdom. Fifth, the depiction of Jesus as the conquering lion is further defined as the sacrificial lamb. The lamb defines what Jesus as the conquering Messiah actually means. Sixth, Jesus is the one who is simultaneously understood with the significance of having been slaughtered and someone who is standing. He is the crucified and the risen lamb, and both of these images are held in tension. And lastly, in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus bears the authority of one who is complete in power and in wise insight. Based on these points, it is safe to conclude that the Christology depicted in the book of Revelation is one of a high human Christology. That is, depicting Jesus as a highly empowered human ruler who descended from Judah and from David. And someone who is descended from Judah and David cannot be Yahweh himself or any sort of heavenly angel. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we look at how Revelation adopts and subverts an ancient story about the figure of Leto in Revelation's portrayal of Jesus, the woman, and the dragon 
of Revelation chapter 12. If you're not familiar with this Lido imagery, please look forward to this coming episode. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider supporting us. You can support our podcast for free by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends and writing a review on iTunes. If you feel led to donate to the podcast, you may do so by checking out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Special thanks to Dustin Williams for his editing and the post-production of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This podcast would not exist without Mr. Williams' expertise. But my name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks, take care and be safe.